BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos. Coming up on Forum, Ukraine officials reported today some progress in ceasefire talks with Russia as the humanitarian toll of the invasion mounts and as the United States further increases military and economic aid to the war-torn country. The war in Ukraine has forced a shift in President Biden's policy priorities. And his handling of the crisis and its fallout at home will have significant implications for what's likely to be a challenging midterm election cycle for Democrats. We'll talk about some of the key races and issues at play and the impact of war on the elections. Welcome to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim. As the war in Ukraine rages and Americans are starting to feel its economic impacts at home, President Biden and congressional Democrats are recalibrating their messages to voters as the midterm elections approach, trying to remind them that Russian President Vladimir Putin is to blame for rising energy prices and emphasizing the U.S.'s global leadership. We're going to spend this hour talking about how the war in Ukraine and all the fallout from it is informing the elections as well as other issues that are top of mind for voters. Here to discuss all of this with us is Greg Bluestein. He's politics reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and author of the forthcoming book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Greg, good morning. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk with you. Also with us, Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Mel, good morning. Happy to be here. And Annie Carney, congressional correspondent for the New York Times. Annie, thank you so much as well. Thank you so much. Well, I feel like we have to start with Ukraine. It is um, obviously dominating the news cycle. And we just heard this morning that Ukrainian President Zelensky will address Congress on Wednesday. Uh, Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Schumer sent out a, a letter this morning, Annie, uh, to Congress. What do you know, if anything, about what we might hear from Zelensky and sort of why at this moment uh, Congress wants to hear from him directly? Um, I think what we're going to hear is uh, a bit of a reiteration of what he's already asked for, which is more fighter jets from the United States to combat Russia. Uh, And and he has a lot of support in in Congress. He's been talking to congressional leaders. Uh, Speaker Pelosi told us last week at the Democratic retreat that she spent close to an hour on the phone with him. And um, I don't expect 
we'll hear a new ask. I think his ask is still the same. Mm -hmm. And that likely the result of this will be just rallying more support on Capitol Hill. Um, and then that will translate into pressure on the White House from the Hill um, to, to offer that support. And is that support uh, coming like in a bipartisan manner? I mean, I know sort of we, we'll zoom out in a second and talk about how this is this Ukrainian conflict is playing politically in terms of the midterms. But do you feel like there is sort of more unity on some of this within Congress than on most issues? At least in terms of support for Zelensky as a international hero and for Ukraine, yes. We've seen um, Republicans being outspoken about their support for the most part. There's a few outliers, um, Donald Trump, the former president being one, Madison Cawthorn being one, but mostly the leaders have been expressing real support. Um, they've been you know, really elevating. There's one freshman Republican congresswoman who is from Ukraine, and she's been making the rounds with Lindsey Graham, with others, um, trying to just, you know, show, yes. So yes, the short answer is yes. <laughs> Bipartisan support. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and again, I don't want to get too, we're going to have a whole show on Ukraine tomorrow, but yeah. quickly just, I mean, what has been the response from Biden? It seems like, you know, the president and congressional leaders as well are very cognizant that any escalation that directly involves the United States, um, you know, could sort of bring us even closer to a direct conflict with Russia. Yes. And I think that there has been so far um, some hesitancy about sending these uh, fighter jets for a variety of reasons. Uh, if that's the most, uh, you know, yes, there's obviously fear of getting further embroiled. If these are the best use of our resources, if, if it's the best thing that they need from us. Um, so we'll see, you know, how more pressure from the Capitol Hill, how much the White House listens to that. That Absolutely. we'll stay tuned for that. Melanie Mason, um, do we have any indication yet how voters are feeling about this conflict and, and about the president's response? Is this something that, um, you know, the polling or, or, or sort of your conversations out there in the real world, um, do we have a sense yet? Well, first of all, I think we do have a sense that um, that Vladimir Putin is deeply, deeply unpopular uh, among the American populace, and that goes, you know, for Democrats, for Republicans, for Independents. Um, he is not a popular person. I think we have seen a surge of popularity for the Ukrainian President Zelensky, um, and I so I do think that generally polls so far have shown uh, that the American people want to support Ukraine. They are siding with Ukraine in this conflict, but I'm going to be most interested in the polls that are starting to come out um, in this current week because this. Last week, once we started seeing the sanctions directly on Russian oil, and then we have seen gas prices here in the United States uh, increase accordingly, now we're starting to see some effect on Americans' pocketbook. And so it's not just the sort of expression of democratic values when people are asking, uh, you know, are polled about this. This is actually a how is this affecting us here in the States? And I think that that might potentially change the calculus. So I am particularly interested to see how much more there is a continued appetite for the support for Ukraine when we are at, you know, here in California, $6 a gallon, um, that that might change some people's calculus. Absolutely. And I, I do want to get a little deeper into that. But quickly, Mel, I mean, the GOP approach so far, you know, watching the kind of you know, Sunday shows and 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 rhetoric has really been to hit President Biden, saying he was too weak. Um, there's been an argument made by especially those who support former President Trump that this wouldn't have happened on his watch, which I think a lot of Democrats would push back on. But do you have any sense politically, like among the parties, is there a deep differences between how the public is viewing this conflict so far and the president's response? 
Well, I think that the benefit for Republicans and being the opposition is that you can find critiques sort of no matter where you want to come at this. So we've seen Republicans say, for example, they were really, really um, calling for the White House to step up their sanctions to block R Russian uh, oil exports, for example, but then immediately are going to start criticizing uh, the administration for high gas prices. Um, and so they'll, they'll, of course, say that there is a policy solution, which is sort of uh, more drilling or the Keystone Pipeline. But the truth is, is that the sort of timelines don't quite line up with what they're calling for. But, you know, when you're in the opposition, in some ways that doesn't really matter. And so they're able to use this as a cudgel. And I do think that there is a little bit of a rift within the Republican party in that there is still some instinct, some muscle memory of the idea that politics stops at the water edge with water's edge with some of these older school Republicans, right? And so there are folks like say Senate, uh, Senator uh, Mitt Romney, for example, who I think has gone out of his way to, to, to praise how the administration has been using this in sort of a sense of trying to present a united front. But then you do see people like Congressman Cawthorn, for example, um, who the reflexiveness of if Democrats like X, then we must like Y. I mean, we see that with how he was calling Zelensky a thug. And so I think that that is going to be um, sort of a, a burgeoning issue. I think that generally Republicans have tried to tamp down on the anti-Zelensky rhetoric as a party, but I have been noticing that some of the uh, sort of MAGA types online and some of the, the right-wing thought leaders are starting to really be more vocal in questioning why there is such a reflexive support for Ukraine among uh, the American populace and also the Democratic Party. And so it, I would not be surprised if those that chorus started becoming louder and louder within the right. Interesting. Greg Blustein, I want to bring you in here. You're you're on the ground and as you describe it, a purple state in Georgia. Are you seeing this Ukraine conflict and then, of course, the fallout on gas and energy prices um, kind of come up on the ground yet in some of the races? Because, you know, you all have a governor's race undergoing and obviously congressional and other races are are starting to heat up a little. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we rarely see foreign international affairs rank highly in polls among the top concerns of, of voters here in Georgia, just like the rest of the nation. We often see economy, immigration, health care, you know, jobs. Um, but this is going to start rising in, in the minds of voters because it's so closely tied with the economy, so closely tied with jobs. And Democrats here know that. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it when when Senator Raphael Warnock, maybe the most vulnerable Democratic incumbent in the Senate who's up for election in November, when he qualified to run for office a few days ago, that one of the first things he said was that he was going to advocate for this freeze on federal gas tax um, gas taxes at the fuel pump uh, in order to help save consumers more money. I mean, that that is sort of his lead message right now. It's not expanding voting rights, which is something he might be more known for nationally. It is going to be this measure to suspend gas taxes, federal gas taxes at the fuel pump, because voters here are now, we're about 450 a gallon, but that's about as high as it's ever been. Metro Atlanta hit a high, um, a record high last week in terms of gas prices. And, and it is the talk of the town in some sense uh, about what the government can do or what little the government can really do um, to, uh, to, to help save voters at the fuel pumps. Um, but at the same time, you know, Republicans are also talking more and more uh, aggressively. They're trying to feel out their message. Um, just the other day, just yesterday, Georgia GOP chair David Schaefer um, came out with a tweet basically amplifying Russian propaganda about um, about a U.N. vote from 2021 um, that the U.S. voted against. Um, and he got roundly criticized by both Democrats and Republicans. So. It reminds you that, you know, it's still very toxic in Georgia, at least, to go and have a pro-Putin tweet, a pro-Russia tweet. Um, but 
you can definitely sense Republicans trying to feel out what's the best message for them. What's, what's the message beyond gas prices that most resonates with voters? Absolutely. We are talking about key midterm election races coming up. What's on voters' minds, including uh, what's happening in Georgia and elsewhere with Greg Bluestein, politics reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Melanie Mason, national political correspondent at the LA Times, and Annie Carney, congressional correspondent at the New York Times. Annie, on the flip side, you wrote a column recently about how Democrats are trying to position themselves. And I mean, part of it's just like whiplash, right? Because just in January, things looked very different than they do a few months later in terms of the global realities. But one line struck me from one of your stories, which is Representative Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey sort of framing Ukraine as a potentially unifying message for Democrats. Talk about that and how that could be used to counter, you know, what we're hearing the GOP kind of get ready to do, which is, you know, really slam the president on gas prices and, and, and other things and, that w- you know, what they perceive as his weakness. Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, Gottheimer is one of the uh, 31, I think it is, 32 Democrats identified as they're called frontliners, i.e. their seats are um, they're in competitive races. And these are the that the Democrats have identified as the most vulnerable Dems. Uh, and he's a, he's a moderate Democrat. And he was talking about how he was he liked the message out of the State of the Union, where the president talked about veterans and opioids uh, and the war in Ukraine, where broadly Democrats are happy with the president's handling of the crisis so far, um, unlike the crisis in Afghanistan, which um, you saw his poll numbers completely tank afterwards and not really recover for a long time. There is broad support for how he's been handling this so far. So Gotthammer was kind of talking about it as um Somewhere where there's bipartisan support, um, you know, along with these issues where everyone can come together. And that's helpful for him in his district where he did not like, you know, the the push towards um, progressive policies and voting rights that didn't appeal as much to his voters. Absolutely. And I think that's going to be the challenge for Democrats, that big tent. (laughs) Uh, Again, we are talking about the midterm election and current politics. We'll be back after a short break and we'd love to hear from you. This is Farm. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim today. We are talking about national politics and how they might be shaping the upcoming midterm elections. Um, we would love to hear from you. What are your questions about the midterm elections? We have a great panel of experts here, um, and we'd love to hear your predictions or expectations. Um, and if you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, what do you want to hear from your political party or the party you might be most likely to support this year? We're at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You can also email questions to forum at kqed.org. All right, y'all. So I feel like we have to talk about what, what everybody has hinted at, which is inflation and gas prices. Um, and, and Melanie, to start with, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about, you know, the fact that often how voters feel is more important than actually the reality, right? And I think to some extent that's going to be true around crime, which is another, you know, shaping up to be a midterm issue. Um, but on inflation, that's a thing. And, you know, we're hearing talk on both sides about a gas tax holiday, things like that. Do you think it's important politically for Democrats to act, even if it doesn't have the effect of bringing down gas prices all that much? Like, is 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 just making that effort important? I think that Democrats feel incredibly vulnerable on the that, the that voters perceive that they are not doing work on the issues that voters care about. And I think that that was part of the problem with we had a whole year where Democrats were sort of spinning their wheels on their on Build Back Better and this big congressional plan that that didn't get anywhere. And at the same time, we are seeing uh, inflation increase. And so I think that Democrats have to be incredibly sensitive to the fact that voters want to just have a sense that politicians are aware of what people are experiencing in their daily lives. And even though the economy on a lot of other metrics is doing quite well, if we're looking at the unemployment rate, if we're looking at jobs created, I think that if Democrats are not speaking to what people's anxieties are, and that is that they are seeing rising prices at the pump or in supermarkets, then they're just going to look out of touch. And so I do understand why you see people like Governor Gavin Newsom here in California, for example, talking about trying to get you know re uh, relief for for uh, drivers or car owners. I do think that we're going to be seeing people from both parties try to speak to this because it is the single greatest economic question that voters are thinking about right now. Absolutely. I mean, Greg Bluestein, we're seeing that play out in real time. Um, uh, senator Raphael Warnock, who you just identified as perhaps the most vulnerable Democratic senator, but along with three others who were in tight races, um, including uh, Catherine Cortez Mosto of Nevada, Mark Kelly of Arizona, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire. They're all calling for this gas tax holiday, which, you know, I, I think could go a long way in in doing what Melanie's talking about, but I think it's like, what, 18 cents a gallon? I mean, it's not going to bring mm -hmm. gas prices back to where they were. So what is Warnock talking about and why do you think he, as a vulnerable uh, candidate, is, is really focusing on it? He's trying to show off his popular streak. It doesn't mean he still doesn't support federal voting rights expansions and, and some of the liberal policies that, that we might know him for nationally, right? He, he gave all those um, uh, well-watched speeches on uh, federal voting rights in the John Lewis Act. Um, but locally, he is trying to do embrace that sort of populist uh, side of himself. He's talking about price gougers in foreign shippers. Um, he's talking about uh, capping the insulin, the price of insulin. These are not necessarily controversial, polarizing uh, issues, right? These are things that you could imagine getting broad bipartisan consensus over. And that's what he's focusing on heading into um, a really, really tough election cycle. Um, 
he had a uh, town hall meeting not that long ago. It was his first town hall meeting. And one of the first things he said was that, hey, I know the price of milk. I go to the grocery store. I am one of you. His first ad, his first TV ad did not feature anyone with a mask. And he was looking direct to camera and he says, I feel you. I, I am you. You know, I am one of you. So he is trying to connect viscerally with voters to say that, hey, I understand that prices are going up and I'm feeling it as well. Yeah. Now, whether or not he really is, who knows, <laughs> but it's the message he's giving. And that's, that's what's, that's what's, you know, he hopes will resonate as he starts this really, really tough reelection campaign. That's Greg Bluestein. He's author of the forthcoming book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Annie Carney, I mean, is what Senator Warnock is messaging um, unique or are we seeing that in a lot of vulnerable candidates? Is this, you know, a, a way to kind of connect, even if, again, the policy outcomes don't actually, you know, may, maybe bring down prices as much as folks would want? I think we're seeing it broadly. One thing that the Democrats were talking about last week at their retreat in Philadelphia was exactly what you said, which is that we need to show voters that we, you know, we're not sounding preachy or condescending. We need to, we need to fix the way we're talking to them and make them feel like we're we're talking about the things that matter in their everyday lives. So gone is the talk of build back better and transformative policies that, you know, would change the social safety net from cradle to grave. And that was once like the Democrats pitch for reelection. And now it's shrunk down. No one wants to talk about build back better. No one wants to say the phrase. They want to talk about the price of, of gas, the price of hamburger meat, the price of milk, you know, they're, they're re they're trying to retool the message. Uh, and they're looking to the white house for some guidance on that. And the white house is full of these. They're really trying to highlight these economic indicators that they think they, um, show that they, how much progress they've made over the past year. But as you said, economic indicators, it sounds like a lot of numbers. The one that really matters day to day is inflation. And, and I think that the, the white house and Democrats have been a little bit late to taking it as seriously to not, um, but they are now kind of all in focusing on that they know it's a real problem. One thing that we have to see is um, if this branding of Putin, Putin's price hike is really gonna work and the White House saying, you know, this is a global crisis and we all are gonna have to pitch in a little, life's gonna be a little bit harder for everyone. How is that gonna translate to voters? Uh, that's to be to be seen. Yeah, that was kind of my next question. Like, is that a realistic political goal, Annie, do you think to say to really tie these prices to Putin? I mean, I don't know what other option they have. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's we'll see. I don't know. I mean, we'll see if, if voters think that this collective uh, we all have to take a little bit of the burden is something that appeals to them. But over and over, I heard especially from um, talking about how, how we pitch ourselves to voters as the people who care about their everyday problems. Um, you know, Democrats reiterated, what's our elevator pitch to voters? We care about everyday Americans and they don't. Uh, how, like, will Dems buy that? I mean, it's a really tough election cycle for House Dems and for the Senate. I mean, the conventional wisdom is that both are 
likely to be lost. If, if the Dems keep the House, that will be a, a huge shock of a political story. Absolutely. Melanie, Sue writes, why do you and the media keep saying the president needs to do something about gas prices? I think she meant me, but I'll ask you. Um, uh, she wants to know, isn't oil companies that we should pressure to keep gas prices low? They're the ones raising the prices. They're not going broke. I mean, Mel, I expect this is part of Democrats' message, but it's a tough one. Very difficult. And we did see President Biden try to sort of make that argument in his State of the Union, right? He he talked about inflation and really sort of pinned it on um, supply chain issues, but also sort of, uh, you know, greedy producers or monopolies. And we've heard them talk about, for example, going after meatpacking monopolies to try and um, deal with high prices that way. The problem is, is that if you're a politician blaming somebody else, um, especially if you're the president, just kind of makes you look like you can't do your job, right? It makes you look ineffective. And I did. I think this is the difference between governing and campaigning, right? I think when you're governing, the truth is that you have a set of policy options that are none of which are going to be perfect and none of which are going to either be able to address the problem um, immediately in the way that people are, are demanding or in a way that's going to satisfy all of your various constituencies. But when you're campaigning, you don't have, you know, five minutes to explain all of the various efforts that you're trying to make and the complications to all those efforts. You have to, in a very pithy way, say, here's what I'm going to do about this. And I would say that pointing to another guy, especially if it's not your opponent, but some other entities like, like a gas company, um, it might feel satisfying for people who are already on your side. But I think to people who are perhaps trying to determine if they want to support the president or Democrats, they might find that to be pretty unsatisfying to hear from the leader of the party. Oh, there's nothing I can do. It's these greedy oil companies. Right. Um, Annie Carney, I wonder, though, I mean, we've heard, you know, talk, like I said, about a gas tax holiday, but also folks like Senator Elizabeth Warren on the progressive side of the party saying, you know, there should be a windfall profit tax. I mean, is there any do you see any chance that there would actually be legislation or executive orders that go after these oil companies? Because it does seem like politically that could be some a way for Democrats to kind of flex what you're talking about, which is this empathy with voters, this showing that they're at least trying to do something. Yes. Um, I mean, the left is very much trying to use this moment as, you know, saying this is a call for passing climate investments to reduce dependence on fossil fuels and foreign dictators. Like this, this is an opportunity to pass stuff like this. I don't see much movement on that other than uh, a messaging and tweets from progressive Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of push from the, from Congress to asking the White House to do executive actions, which is, you know, they want something to show their voters before November that they've gotten something done for them. But the big legislation, Build Back Better, failed. So it's it's almost a capitulation saying all the, at this point, Biden has to act on his own um, to, you know, cap the price of insulin or to pass, you know, the congressional black caucus is pushing the White House to do something executive action on voting rights. This is sort of a last, I mean, it's it's a, it's a, admitting that legislation failed. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of your question though, will the White House do something? Uh, I, I don't, I haven't seen any indication that they would on climate right now. I mean, um, I think that right now the president is completely, I mean, Ukraine, a war uh, that's consuming him. Um, inflation is a huge problem, but he, there's so much going on in the world right now that I, he, the midterm elections, while they're, he's positioned them as the most important uh, midterms 
ever. Um, <laughs> Which I, I feel know. like we hear all the time now. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Time. I don't know that he has the bandwidth for that. And I haven't, I haven't seen yet what, what the White House's response is to all these requests for executive actions. Absolutely. All right. I want to bring in a caller, Matt from Moraga. Matt, go ahead. Yeah. Hey, I, I just, it, the last few minutes actually demonstrated what, what the problem is. I think a lot with the, the timing of this higher gas prices as though the president can do something. And that, that's, I, I just don't understand why that c- continues to be a talking point and media thinks of it like, there is something he could do, and 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 it's the it, inflation is worldwide right now. Gas prices are, are world markets. Unless the president starts a war or something like Putin did, he there's no effect on pricing. Yeah, that Biden can, he can do anything. So I don't understand why they're continually framing this as so what is he going to do about what are you going to do about gas right. prices when they when they know he can't do anything. Otherwise, he would. All right. Thank you, Matt. That's a great point. I mean, Greg Bluestein, is it us or or is it the public? I mean, people do blame presidents for the economic situation, regardless of their power. Um, I mean, how do you see the sort of public reacting? And and do you see a difference between folks, depending on which side of the aisle they're on? Right. The buck stops with the president. And so there are voters who are upset, Democrats and Republicans that we talk to all the time who want something done. You know, they, it, it's, it is hard to explain um, to your average voter how little effect, that how little control that a president has over, over worldwide global markets and the supply chain problems we've been having that are all, that are mostly pandemic related, right? Um, but we're still feeling the after effects of, the, of that, you know, years long um, uh, global supply chain issues. Right. And so voters want something to be done and, and, and candidates are struggling to figure out what that is. You know, Republicans can easily just point the finger because they're not in power right now. Democrats are the ones who have to come up with that explanation, which is why you're seeing candidates like Senator Warnock and others uh, talk about price gouging and in, in from global suppliers. And you're hearing about uh, trying to cap certain prices of, of you know, necessary drugs and, and medicines and products, things like that. Um, but it is going to be something that will continue to dog Democrats. And, you know, when we did our latest journal constitution poll of Joe Biden's approval numbers, they dropped double digits. He's at around one third approval rating here in Georgia. This is a state he won not that long ago by about 11,000 votes. So that just How shows you- How long ago was that, Greg, with that, with that poll? Yeah, it was just last month. Okay. Um, so it, it, it factored in a significant majority of Georgia voters are worried about inflation, Democrats and Republicans. So that's why politicians are trying to figure out some answer to this, um, especially Democrats, because they're in the crosshairs. And in a state like Georgia, where not only is Warnock up for election, but every statewide constitutional office is up for grabs, of, of course, along with Congress. And so Stacey Abrams, um, and the rest of the uh, the Democrats running statewide, uh, they don't want this issue to dog them down either. Absolutely. Um, of course, Melanie Mason, this war- politics changes very quickly these days, right? And I mean, I'm always, as a political reporter myself, um, hesitant to make any huge predictions so far ahead of time because, you know, we didn't know a few months ago that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. I mean, have we seen any changes in in just recent weeks among national public polling on, on Biden's numbers? And if, you know, this conflict is changing any of the stuff Greg's laying out? There seemed to be a slight uptick in his approval numbers. It feels like he sort of maybe bottomed out at the end of last year into January. And then we did see both from um after the State of the Union, he got a little bit of a bump. I, I don't want to exaggerate, though. I mean, we're still talking about a president whose approval ratings are averaging in, in the low 40s, um, and that's a 
gigantic warning sign uh, for Democrats. But to your point, Marissa, I mean, things can change very rapidly. Um, and, you know, if we were, to, if we were talking at this time last year, looking ahead at the midterms, we would be thinking, you know, the vaccines were rolling out. There was this unbelievable optimism that we were past the pandemic and that it was going to be, you know, roaring 20s again. And I was having conversations with people in my newsroom about how we could really theoretically see Democrats sort of bucking these historical trends of usually having lost, the president's party having losses in, in, in the subsequent midterm, because you could see a booming economy and everybody feeling so relieved that COVID was over. And we all know what happened afterwards, right? Delta came, the Afghanistan pullout, and then there was Omicron. And so I do think that in some ways, the tough thing about politics and the tough thing for Democrats right now is that they're not entirely in control of their own destiny. There are so many external events. And you talked about uh, this war on Russia that could, you know, I think in some ways, benefits Biden because it speaks to his skill set. This is somebody who's been in, in, involved in foreign affairs for so long. And I think we have seen in the coalition building that he has done that that speaks to somebody who has really been steeped in these issues for some time. But then you can also see issues looming around the corner. I was just reading today about how in China, there are lockdowns in Shenzhen, which is a major producer. It's a manufacturer for Apple. And so you could see prices jumping even further because of these supply chain issues. These are things that the president cannot control, but he and his party are going to have to navigate because, you know, that tough cookies, that's great. Absolutely. We are talking about national politics, key midterm election races. We're going to get to that in just a second with Greg Bluestein, politics reporter at the Atlantic uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Melanie Mason, national political correspondent at the Los Angeles Times, and Annie Carney, congressional correspondent at the New York Times. Uh, we want to hear from you if you have questions about the midterm elections, about specific races. We have a very expert panel here. Um, any predictions? Or if you're a Democrat or Republican or even independent, what do you want to hear from your political party or either political party? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We have a couple of comments from listeners. Harvey writes, it might be useful to remind voters that the GOP wants to deregulate the heck out of everything and then ask the voters how they think that will affect prices and inflation. Paul says that Democrats should start citing the prices the British, French and Germans are paying for petrol and we aren't next door to Putin. And David says that one of the most challenging things for Democrats is that they're pitching to the misinformation formed who are slowed by the lies and emotional arguments of Republicans. Because of this, the Democrats always seem to bring knives to a gunfight. I want to see some hyper aggressiveness from the Democrats in calling out the Republican lie machine. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about these key midterm races, what's happening in places like Georgia, um, and how the political map looks after redistricting. A little bit of a surprise in recent weeks. I'm Risa Lagos in Fermina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim, and we are talking about the upcoming midterm election, all those congressional races, Senate races, and how things look uh, for President Biden and Democrats in a year where there's a lot of uh, expectation that they could lose their majority. I want to bring in a caller, Dan from Santa Clara. Dan, go right ahead. Hi, good morning. I'm a single issue voter, and that is uh, that we can all vote. So my question for you is, how will the January 6th commission, which appears to be heating up, affect the upcoming election? Good question. Annie Carney of The New York Times, what do you think? How does the January 6th commission affect the upcoming election? Yeah, what could their investigation and whatever whatever comes out in the coming months? It's funny. I hear so little about um, January 6th when talking to Democrats. I think it's because, again, they're trying to focus on these day to day issues and show voters that they're hearing them. Um, It it will help, you know, make an argument that this is a party that called. I mean, the one thing that Republicans are hurting themselves by is by having any headlines that aren't about inflation, I think. And so giving Democrats an opportunity to say the other party has called the, the, the attack on the Capitol legitimate political discourse. That's the other side. Um, and um, and that's what that's what you're voting for. If, if an, an attack on truth and uh, election integrity, these are issues that the other side is playing down. I I heard January 6th mentioned not at all last week by House Democrats. So it's uh, it's interesting. It, I don't think they're looking at it as uh, a top line midterm uh, talking point, especially for those vulnerable Dems. Yeah. Greg Bluestein, I mean, are you hearing this conversation at all in a, in a state like Georgia? Um, it seems like, you know, maybe this is something the Democrats could try to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Talk about kitchen table issues, but potentially not lose sight of what did happen, um, you know, that horrific insurrection. Yeah, not directly involving January 6th, or at least the investigation, even though there are some key Georgia officials who have been investigated and who have been uh, interviewed by the panel. Um, and there's also, of course, the Fulton County ongoing investigation into whether or not the former president um, committed voter fraud or committed fraud um, by pre- pressuring state of elections officials to overturn the election and reverse it in his favor. But overall, here, the, the debate over elections is more about the, the impact that a sweeping rewrite of Georgia election laws will have on the ballot box um, in May for our primaries, June for our runoffs, and, and November for our elections, because there's still a huge concern about a lot of voters don't know these changes. Um, they don't know, um, you know, what districts they're living in now. There's a lot of voter confusion with redistricting. And of course, we still haven't really had a major test of these new rules like absentee ballot, um, uh, voter IDs for absentee voters, um, tighter deadlines in which to return absentee ballots, um, more rules that limit um, ballot drop boxes in some jurisdictions and different voting times. And of course, um, 
the overall, I think the, the, the part of that provision that has the biggest impact in Georgia, at least, is the Republican-controlled legislature will now have more power um, to intervene in local elections uh, officials. So we'll see how that all impacts. But that's the sort of the debate here in Georgia. And it's, that's what's keeping Democrats up at night, because we're just not sure. We, we had municipal elections last cycle, but they were very um, low turnout, right? right? I mean, Atlanta mayor's race, but that was about it. But we still haven't had a major statewide test. Absolutely. I mean, Melanie Mason, one area that could help Democrats slightly is the new maps, which have sort of become surprisingly more balanced than a lot of people were expecting a year ago. Can you just quickly fill us in on how things are looking when it comes to uh, redistricting and the, the sort of balance in the Congress? Yes, I think that when we were going into this redistricting season, I think that there was an assumption that because Republican uh, legislatures sort of controlled the pen to draw these new districts um, in more states than Democrats did, that Republicans would be able to very uh, assertively draw these boundaries in a way that would benefit them. And I know there was even chatter that Repub uh, Democrats could lose seats just by new, new maps being drawn. That does not appear to have been the case. It seems like a lot of the approach has been by um, some Republican-controlled legislatures, such as in Texas, instead of maybe aggressively trying to draw new Republican districts, they instead made the existing districts more Republican. So they were it was a little bit more of an incumbent protection plan uh, than it was trying to find new territory. Uh, and then we've seen some pretty important court cases where maps that I think were drawn to the benefit of uh, Republicans have been um, overturned, either in state Supreme Courts or um, um, the uh, United States Supreme Court did, you know, failed to decided not to intervene. And so what we're seeing generally is more of, an, of, a, of a friendlier map for Democrats than people anticipated. But I think this is all a matter of expectations. It's because they were anticipating an incredibly unfriendly map. So I don't think that we should say that Democrats come out of redistricting looking like they're in a strong position. They are in a less weak position than they would have otherwise been. Um, and of course, if you have a president whose approval ratings remains in the 40s as we get into October or November, even this, the sort of swing seats um, become there's there's a, there's a much wider range of swing state seats if there's so much sort of dissatisfaction with uh, the incumbent party with the Democrats. And so I think the Democrats are breathing a bit of a sigh of relief, but let's not over exaggerate and say that they are celebrating going into this midterms. Well, and, and Annie Carney, you've written a lot about the record number 30 Democrats, I think, so far, unless somebody has announced since I last checked, uh, are retiring. That speaks to this concern about, the, you know, losing Congress, right? I mean, you don't retire in a lot of cases unless you think you might lose or you're actually ready to do so. No, it, it's a bad sign. It's 31, I think, now. And um Yes, it's it's they're showing with their feet where they think the the election is going. Democrats lead, leadership has tried to play down the significance of these retirements or people moving on to other run for other things, saying a lot of these people are in safe seats. So it doesn't mean that those 31 are going to all flip, that some of these don't matter so much. Um uh that a, another Democrat will win there. But it certainly shows uh not a lot of optimism about their future as uh, the party and leadership in Congress. One thing to add to Melanie's point, I, from more optimistic Democrats or who are trying to project optimism uh, about the map is that they have told me that in 2020, they did worse than pundits thought they would. Mm -hmm. um, seeing unexpected congressional losses. And they think that maybe that 
the opposite could be true this time. Again, they're not saying they'll hold the house, but that the it won't be uh, as bad as expected, partly because the redistricting and partly because they lost more. They've already lost more than people thought they would. So maybe this year won't be quite as bad. <laughs> that's that's an interesting optimistic message, I'd say. Uh, Lance writes, I'm so tired of allowing Republicans to continue to label themselves conservatives. I see nothing about today's Republicans that's conservative. They need to be renamed as radicals. The anti-trans push, denying voting rights, wanting to cut social spending in favor of tax cuts for the rich, etc. Democrats need to call out everything Republicans are doing, which is cruel, and deny them the cover of conservative labeling. Uh, Greg Lucino, what do you make of that? Do you feel like any of these issues, voting rights, which obviously a lot of that battle was taking place in Georgia, um, some of the, you know, anti-gay or anti-trans bills we're seeing in other Republican-led states, is that resonating on either side with voters or, or are they just so concerned about their pocketbooks right now? No, right now culture wars are raging in Georgia. It is all an attempt by Republicans to energize their base. And it's, um, you know, Republicans will say that, right? Um, There is legislation to vastly expand gun rights, allow more people to carry concealed weapons. Um, And really education policy is at the forefront here. Um, Legislation that would allow easier, make it easier to ban quote unquote obscene books and ban divisive concepts from being taught and uh, better control how discussions of race and gender are being addressed in in Georgia, um, and that's for that that is intended to energize Republican voters. Um, and so I think that these issues are still not in the backseat at all. I mean, as much as the economy and gas prices are worrying voters, this is also a play at galvanizing primary voters, conservative primary voters, in some very heated contests in Georgia. We've got, of course, our incumbent governor, Governor Kemp, is facing a former Senator David Perdue. We've got other um, really competitive tickets um, up and down the, the May primary ballot. And so um, that is that is really what a lot of the debate is, is, is being waged over in Georgia is classroom issues, gun issues, and then pocketbook issues. And is that only galvanizing the right? Or do you see Democrats or folks on the left um, also being motivated to come out against these types of things? Yeah, that's the after effect, right? Um, in 2019, when Georgia passed one of the stiffest anti-abortion measures in the nation, Democrats said this will come back and haunt you. And you can make the argument that in 2020, the state flipped in part because people, a lot of voters, a lot of Democratic voters and some moderates were upset about that that abortion measure. I mean, other things were also obviously also played into that. Um, but this is exactly what Democrats are saying. There is a version of the don't say gay bill that we saw in Florida. It popped up in the Georgia legislature just a few days ago. It's not going to go anywhere. But, you know, it's obviously a messaging tool for Republicans. But Democrats say they can use that as a message messaging tool as well. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting double. Um, I want to bring in a caller, Cole. Cole has a question for you, Greg. Cole, go ahead. <laughs> Hello, Ms. Lagos. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, two really quick questions. Uh, from the panelists in Georgia, who's the top uh, Republican contender uh, running up against uh, uh, Senator Warnock uh, in November? Uh, are, are they kind of like a Trump proxy, or do you see someone taking the more uh, Governor Yunkin approach from Virginia? And number two, uh, for all panelists, who is – is the bipartisan infrastructure bill what's in place or are any Democrats not touching uh, energy saying that, you know, this could help us by passing, you know, a social spending bill? Uh, I'll take my questions off the air. Thank you. Thanks, Cole. Uh, Greg, you want to tackle that first question about the Warnock challenge? 
Yeah, good question. I love it. He knows Georgia. Um, it is former football star Herschel Walker. He is by far leading in the Republican polls. I've seen polls putting him as high as 80% of that of primary electorate. And that's partly because in Georgia, you know, her. if you if you were born in Georgia, you know Herschel Walker. I mean, I grew up hearing stories about his his national football championship back in the 19, early 1980s. Um, as a candidate, he, of course, has Donald Trump's endorsement. So he's, he's running as a pro-Trump candidate. And when the former president comes to Georgia in a few weeks, a few days, he'll be right there front and center with him. But he's also trying to say he's his own man, Absolutely. that he knows Georgia better than Donald Trump does. So he's trying to kind of walk that line. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. Well, that was a great transition because I do want to talk about the Trump effect. And Melanie, I'll go to you first. Um, you re- recently wrote about the governor's race in Arizona. Uh, Republican Doug Ducey declining to challenge Democratic Senator Mark Kelly. I'm I'm sorry, not the governor's race, the Senate race. Um, this is the third GOP governor, I think, by my count, to demur uh, Senate uh, m- Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell's entreaties to challenge sitting senators. Does that tell you anything about the state of the GOP or, or even this bigger question of sort of Trump's influence? I think that that is potentially one of the great hopes that Democrats can hang their hat on, particularly for the Senate races as they're looking ahead, is, is the Trump factor could... Um, potentially cut against Republicans, because what we're seeing is that Trump, Trump really has one litmus test for if he's going to endorse a candidate or not, is that is if somebody will uh, trumpet this lie that he has, that he uh, actually had won the 2020 presidential election, which of course is not based in fact. But he is, I mean, this is something that he has uh, asked of or has has praised candidates who have talked about this. And for example, with Governor Ducey, who certified Arizona's election, and he has been in Trump's sights ever since. Trump has consistently called him a rhino. And so I do think that when you're talking particularly about candidates that are trying to run statewide, you don't just have to appeal to your red meat base. You really do have to win over a statewide electorate in a state like Arizona, which is very purple right now. You'd maybe even say red with splotches of purple, but still went to Democrats uh, in 2020 uh, in places like New Hampshire um, or Maryland, which I think that you could see that Governor Hogan could have been a real sort of viable Senate candidate, even though Maryland is generally a blue state. You need candidates who are going to be able to appeal not just to your Republican base, but further out. And if Trump is insisting that the candidates against his endorsement have to play into this relitigation of 2020, I think that can be something that could really turn off independent voters or moderate Republicans who probably even liked some of Trump's policies, but really did not love the divisive politics in the Trump era. And so while they may be willing to sort of revert back to form, if you have a more establishment type Republican uh, running in Senate, maybe not so much if it's a if it's a Trumpy kind of MAGA acolyte. And so I think that that the, the fact that we saw Governor Ducey decline to run for Senate, just like we saw Governor Sununu in New Hampshire and Governor Hogan in Maryland, I think is this tension that still remains in the Republican Party that the base wants Trump acolytes. But do the larger statewide electorates, do they want somebody like that? That's not entirely clear. Yeah. Annie, uh, Carney, what have we seen in some of the early primaries or just generally in polling? I mean, does Trump hold the same sway he did um, in some of these races, or can we tell yet? I think it's going to be too soon to say, but it's going to be a fascinating, um, he's done so many endorsements. Does 
Trump's and can he do for other candidates what he can do for himself? And what will his political power be in the party if many of his candidates, preferred candidates, don't win their elections? It's going to change how we cover him, how the how much of a power player he is. Um, and it, he's putting himself in the line a little bit. He, you know, his prime targets are in addition to, you know, it's a, it's about getting rid of in the house, it's getting rid of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach him. Those are his top 10 targets. He will endorse anyone who challenges them. He, um, and, you know, he, he has not, he and Kevin McCarthy are not always in lockstep about who he should endorse. Um, and he and Mitch McConnell, obviously, you know, are not allies in any way, shape or form. Um, but even Kevin McCarthy, who's trying to hold on, who's trying to win the House back, who's trying. Uh, Trump has made endorsements that he doesn't agree with. Um, so we'll see. We'll, we will see where how what is the power of a Trump endorsement? Is it is it just enough to make you win? So far, it's not clear that you know, he can do for others what he does for himself. Absolutely. Greg, just a, f- a minute or two left here. But I mean, in, in Georgia, this is playing out really clearly in the governor's race. You know, you have a pretty conservative Republican governor who's being challenged um, from the right by a Trumper. Is what do you think? Is Trump going to hold sway in a state like Georgia in these midterms or could he be dangerous for some Republicans? I think we probably have the best test of Trump's influence in the entire nation here in Georgia, because not only do we have that governor's race between David Perdue and, and Governor Kemp, the first lifelong Republican governor in Georgia history, who has a very conservative track record, we also have five other uh, candidates, including one congressional candidate who Donald Trump has endorsed. He just endorsed an insurance commissioner candidate going up against a ver- virtually unknown incumbent who is a Georgia National Guard general. No reason to really object him other than the fact that he was appointed by Governor Kemp to the office. So we have a range of really fascinating races that I think we'll start to tell if Donald Trump still has that sort of influence within the Republican Party that he used to have. It's going to be a long year, you guys. We have been talking about all the key midterm races and sort of national politics, how it's influencing that with Greg Bluestein. He is a politics reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and author of the forthcoming book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. George, or Greg, thank you so much for joining us and please check out his book. Thank you for having me. Melanie Mason is a national political correspondent with the Los Angeles Times. Melanie, always great to have you on. Thanks so much, Marisa. And Annie Carney, very busy congressional correspondent for the New York Times. Annie, thank you so much for taking an hour out of your day. Thank you for having me. That is going to do it for this hour of Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim this week. We appreciate you being here. We'll see you tomorrow. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.